Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are continuing the novella for lesson. And, and this time, this episode, we're going to cover up to page 139 in Castle of Days. Last time we left off with Emmanuel for lesson, our protagonist, dropping off Abraham Beale, a hitchhiker, to go break in some wild horses, and for lesson, getting ready to enter the building where he's supposed to work. Glenn, what happens next? Right. For lesson arrives at work now. As instructed in his binder, he, he fills out a time card and he punches it on the beige time clock, not the, the brown one. And then he's greeted by a youngish woman named Miss Fawn, who informs him that he's late. Now, he's not actually late, of course. He's arrived at 069.56 and work doesn't actually start until 070 sharp. But Mr. Frick, who must be some kind of boss, I guess, uh, Mr. Frick prefers that people arrive at least 20 minutes early. Now, of course, the the real go-getters try to be even earlier than that, even though they can't really do any work until 070 sharp. So instead, what these guys do when they get to work super early is they unlock their desks and then they go drink coffee and play cards together, which I guess is what go-getting means. So what Forlesson needs to do now that he's finally here a few minutes early is go see Mr. Fields, who is going to be Forlesson's supervisor and can assign him a, a desk. And at this information, Forlesson says... I thought I was a supervisor. And the response to this is just priceless. Miss Fawn says, you are, but Mr. Fields is, y- y- you know, a-, a real supervisor. Anyway, nearly. So if Mr. Fields, who-, who gets to assign the desks to new people, is only nearly a real supervisor, it's pretty clear that for Lesson's title of supervisor is pretty meaningless. And we're going to meet Mr. Fields in, in just a moment. But before we get there, Miss Fawn has one more thing to tell for Lesson about what his first day on the job is going to be like. He has creativity group today and also leadership training. He'll also do company orientation and then he'll do bet your life, which is a management managing real life pseudo game. And finally, he'll have one interdepartmental training transfer. Oh, and also on top of all of this, he's on the planning and evaluation committee. So this job sounds awesome and not at all like every nightmare I've ever had. Office jobs seem insane if you try to put them in these terms. It's absolutely crazy that anybody would choose to do this or organize a society around this type of activity. I mean, this this layers of management that don't mean anything and have no real authority. I mean, Wolf comments on this a little bit later in a kind of throwaway sentence uh, when he talks about for lessons frustration that he's supposed to manage people, but he has no authority to do anything. I mean, that's exactly what's being described here. And and you and I have both been in environments where being on time is being late. And that is just the craziest thing in the whole world. And in the military, the the military is the logical conclusion to this type of attitude towards work. You know, company formation is supposed to be at 7am. But by the time that information gets down to you, you have to be there at 545. Then you mess around until 630 or 645. And none of that is about anybody producing anything or being effective. It's about control. It's about making sure that nothing seems out of line. And and that's what's happening at this office place. Is get here early, play cards, whatever. We just want to make sure you're at your desk at seven. So, you know, there's if you're late, it's okay, but you just make sure you get here early enough that we can see in your desk. It's a, it's a, it's a nightmare. And this is the kind of language that really suffuses this story is these implied threats. And we're going to have to wait to see the how what the rest of these activities are like. But this is his first interaction with a new workplace, which is like you're late. Well, I'm I'm like you know, the equivalent of a full day early. <laughs> And I'm being uh, given crap about it. The first, first thing. And the, right, and the sin of being late, or you know, the sin of being on time, is is not actually about productivity at all. It's simply about the appearance of being early. And in fact, the people who get here really early flagrantly don't do any work. They're playing cards, and we've already seen how reluctant for lesson is to leave his home to leave his wife in the morning so all of these guys who are getting here early just to to drink coffee and play cards could be spending that time with their their family but that time is being robbed of them simply so that someone can see that they're gung-ho about this job that as far as i can tell doesn't actually entail doing anything he's on a committee that's called planning and evaluation they plan things and evaluate 
things? How are those even the same task? What is the thing they're planning and evaluating? Is it all things? Is it no things? Right? I mean, it all seems meaningless. And he's being told that he has to pretend to love it, right? And we all know this feeling. So, all right, Miss Vaughn takes her lesson down to Mr. Fields' office and reminds him to knock on the door before he goes in. Of course, once he's inside, Mr. Fields, who is also here described as youngish, uh, once he's inside, Mr. Fields tells him that he doesn't have to knock. His door is always open. I mean, sometimes it might be, you know, literally closed to keep out noise, but, you know, it's always open. This is an interior office, so there are no windows, but there are some truly banal pictures hanging on the walls. There's a beach with rocks and waves, there's a snow-clad mountain, and two photos of rolling green countryside dotted with cows and and trees. I think we have all been in this exact office before. It's uh, kind of the platonic form of generic offices. So Ed Fields and Emmanuel Forlesson introduce themselves to each other, and Fields immediately calls Forlesson Manny, even though that's not what he called himself, right, when he said his own name. And in this moment, Forlesson feels as if he's being weighed in invisible scales and found slightly wanting. This is ominous. So it's time now for Fields to welcome Forlesson to his group, and he gives a great but also horrifying monologue about what he expects and that sort of thing. And I'm just going to read it because it is a brilliant passage full of wolfish writing. We're a small outfit, but we're sharp. And I intend to make us the sharpest in the division. I need men who will back my play all the way and maybe even run in front a little. Sharpies. That's what I call them. Sharpies. And you work with me, not for me. We're a team and we're going to function as a team. That doesn't mean there isn't a quarterback and a coach up there. It does mean that I expect every man to bat 250 or better, and the ones that don't make 300 had better be damn good field. See what I mean? Forlesson clearly recognizes that so far Fields hasn't actually said anything with any actual meaning here. It's all just been sports metaphors that don't refer to anything specific. And so he asks, what does our subdivision do? What's our function? And the answer he gets is just priceless and also a real callback to the, the talk of management strategies that we had back in Hour of Trust. And Field says, we make money for the company. We do what needs to be done. You see this office, this desk, this chair? There's two kinds of guys that sit here. I mean, all through the company. There's the old has-been guys they stick in here because they've been through it all and seen everything. And there's the young guys like me that get put here to get an education. You get me? Sometimes the young guys just never move out. Then they turn into the old ones. That isn't going to happen to me. And I want you to remember that the easiest way for you to move up yourself is to move into this spot right here. Someday, this will all be yours. That's the way to think of it. That's what I tell every guy in the subdivision. Someday, this will all be yours. You get what I mean? Again, though, there, there, there really isn't any meaning here except that there isn't any meaning here. For lesson has just met his boss at his new job and still doesn't have any idea what the company does to make money, what his subdivision's role in that is, or what he's supposed to go do at this desk that he's supposed to get to at least 40 minutes before work is actually supposed to start. And it's not clear that Fields knows the answers to those questions either. All he has is sports metaphors. Right, and we see immediately a connection between the name Fields and the use of sports and the use of sports metaphors. Some of these other people that uh, Forlesson interacts with are going to speak in metaphors that are appropriate for their names, and I just can't think of a bigger nightmare than encountering that. <laughs> if I had to encounter that in real life, if it was as boring as seeing somebody's last name and guessing what kind of metaphor and jargon they were going to throw at me. I, I would just go home. I, I couldn't handle it at all. Well, one thing to point out here is that it is explicit now that everyone that Forlesson has come across, except for Abraham Beale, is, has the initials EF for their names. But they give themselves nicknames, and maybe that's an attempt to try to differentiate themselves in, in this kind of uh, odd uh, arrangement of naming. Obviously, Mr. Fields has recently taken over for somebody of the previous iteration or working generation. And then that person's name is Mr. D'Andrea, and his initials obviously have to be CD. I'm going to return to these sports metaphors here because they drive me nuts. There there seems to be an issue here that Wolf is pointing out, and maybe with a lot of the way we use metaphors in language in our culture in general – uh, maybe it's just around business, though I think it's kind of a broader issue. And and this is a way of using language and metaphors that are designed to 
refer to something in the world, but has no analog for the actual thing you're talking about. It's a totally empty signifier. And metaphors are great when there's something concrete behind them. But when there's nothing you can point to behind them, you have to wonder what they're even about. And Wolf is doing a great job of pointing out the emptiness of these metaphors. What is the actual practical concrete equivalent of batting 250 in the workplace. You don't even know what your objectives are. What does it mean to bat 250? You are lost in this absolute maze of meaningless language. And and this is really where Wolf is relying on the example of Kafka to tell this sort of story. Right. If you're you're paying attention to this metaphor because this is the answer you're getting to the question of what what do we actually do here? And and Fields is saying Well, I expect everyone to do a good job at their job, but if you don't hit well, then you'd better at least field well, right? Which, you know, okay, that's their their two tasks that players have in baseball, hitting and fielding. And you could extrapolate from that, oh, okay, there are two tasks I'm going to be responsible for. And, you know, there's one that's considered to be way more important. But if I'm only okay at that, but I'm also pretty good still at this other one, then I can get by that way. But no, that's not what what it means. It doesn't mean anything. There is no actual analog to this it is just sound and fury signifying nothing but we are not quite done with fields yet because he's actually going to escort for a lesson to his his new desk and this is rather far away in a a part of the building that's new and, and actually still being constructed at this moment and it's in a massive room of cubicles that have glass walls so there is no real privacy i mean it's explicitly designed as a panopticon And moreover, there are no windows, or or really what I should say is that there are windows in the walls, but they've all been boarded over because they have no glass in them. And when Forlesson asks if they couldn't maybe use some of the cubicle partition glass for the the windows so they, you know, could unboard them and have some light in here and maybe see outside and it won't be a dungeon, Field says that that's a silly idea because you need window glass for windows, not partition glass. And Fields then adds that he thought Forlesson was supposed to have a science background, and to, to this, Forlesson replies that he was under the impression that his responsibilities aren't technical, that they're supposed to be supervisory and managerial here. And all fields can say to this is, don't let anyone tell you that management isn't a science. Sure, it's an art, but it's a science too. And then finally, Forlesson asks one more time what it is he's actually supposed to do here. And then Fields just very dismissively says, oh, there should be a list on the desk somewhere. And then he goes off to a meeting. So Fields does not. He does not know what Forlesson is supposed to do. And I don't think Fields knows what he is supposed to do other than appear to be busy all the time. Right. And we're going to see the evidence of what it means to appear to be busy at this work when we get into the artifacts that Forlesson finds in his desk. This is a this is an absolute nightmare situation. Uh, basically, nothing is asked of him. He's not responsible for anything. It's not clear that he is supposed to produce any real work empty metaphors empty signifiers are being thrown at him and and there's just like not there's nothing for him to to hang on to and he's supposed to already know what his job is before he gets there nobody's taking the time to train him that would be seen as like a a negative i think on his part if somebody were to sit down and say this is your work and we're going to see evidence of this later on this is your work this is what you're assigned this is what we're going to measure your performance on um go do it we're going to support you along the way that would be like there's something wrong with you if you need that type of guidance. And that, that is what we're going to see in a bit here. There's also this bit about the glass that, that really plays into what I've spoken about in the past episode with regards to technique and the, the technological society. Even though both of these objects, the, the, the glass can be used as a window pane. You can remove some of the board and replace some of the glass with the, the partition glass to let in some light. It would be a creative solution to a problem, which I don't know, maybe there are some people interested in solving that that we'll meet (laughs) later on. Um, Even though both these objects are just glass, trying to apply different meanings to them creates a breakdown in the whole system. You can't think that way. You're You're not supposed to be curious or creative. All you're supposed to do is try to fit in, figure out your tasks, and you'll get promoted soon enough. And this is just... Uh, this is just not the type of world that I think anybody wants to live in, but we all seem to tacitly agree to live in every day. 
And this glass is going to have some some more meaning here for us in in the next scene. With with Fields gone, Forlesson enters his cubicle and immediately he has another experience of seeing another man and being taken aback by it. And in this case, it's maybe his own reflection that he sees here in the glass of his cubicle. You know, these these glass partitions are made of rippled glass, and so the the reflection of himself is distorted. And instead of seeing the somewhat dumpy, rumpled man he'd gotten used to being, he sees a taller and neater man with a, a blank face and glasses. And then kind of suddenly the image is is gone. But he, he doesn't actually have any time to, to mull this over because his phone rings. And the man on the other end is looking for someone named Cappy Dillingham, which is a fantastic name. And Miss Fawn now shows up again at precisely this moment and informs for lesson and also the guy on the phone whose name by the way is ned franklin uh, she explains that cappy died and for lesson is replacing him and of course there was a memo about it that everyone should have seen and what this call is about is that the creativity group you just mentioned brandon you just alluded to the creativity group meeting time has to be changed and that means that they can't book a, a proper meeting room and so they're going to just meet in a hallway and this call gives for lesson a chance to ask what it is that they'll be creating at this creativity group meeting. And the answer is they'll be creating creativity itself. They're supposed to learn how to be creative at this meeting. And for lesson makes a, a wry joke here about maybe doing something creative with clay. And this does not go over well. And, and we are going to see this joke return again then in a little bit. And we learn a, a few more things about this company during this conversation. Uh, there's a, a boss named Mr. Frick, and this creativity group is very important to him. So Ned Franklin always has to report back to him about who came and, and whether they're making any progress in learning creativity, learning how to be creative. I mean, it's absolutely crazy to me that the person in charge of this creativity group is only interested in progress. But it's not clear to me how one would evaluate progress for a group that's in charge of creating creativity or what even progress would mean for creativity in this sense of creativity shouldn't necessarily be entirely subservient to progress that seems like a, a a poor sort of that seems like a category error to me in in thinking and it seems as though that the political games that are being played here is most of what it means to work at management in this company. I did want to talk again about what Forlesson sees in the glass, because I, I read this as him uh, as Forlesson seeing Fields through the glass as Fields is walking away and seeing like Fields' future in the company. And so that Fields will go from being the short and thick set and, and kind of rumpled demand that all of these EF men seem to kind of possesses characteristics to actually getting promoted as he climbs the corporate ladder with this stupid attitude that he has, you know, he'll look a little more professional maybe and get glasses. So I, I, I saw that as, as fields um, walking away and seeing his future rather than for lessons reflection in, in the, in the glass. Oh yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's, that's fields who is actually seen the, the, the reflection of in, in the glass, not him himself, but the, the language, what, what I think matters here is that the language is actually the, the same that he uses for fields and for him himself. So there's this startling idea here of, of seeing, you know, all of these youngish guys who are EF and what they're going to be like in the future. Right. And the same sort of confusion exists with, for lesson when he sees, the man out the window in his next door neighbor that there's there's some identity connection between them all and maybe the only thing that differs between them in essence is the desk that they sit at at their job and the question of what exactly it is that differentiates any of these ef guys from one another is going to come back explicitly in the the next episode well, while this banal phone call with Ned Franklin's been going on, Miss Vaughn has deposited a stack of papers on for Lesson's desk, and then she's taken off. Before we get to those papers, though, let's let's take a tour around for Lesson's new cubicle. Despite being in the new part of the building, I mean, and, you know, this is really the part of the building that's still being constructive actively. The, the the stuff in the cubicle is all old and actually nearing the end of its life. Uh, this includes the desk itself and also the chair, but he also finds pads of paper and, and, and pencils and other accoutrements that are you know, crumpled or, or chewed on and, and that sort of thing. And he even finds the detritus of a, a brown bag lunch in one of the drawers. 
the only thing that's new in here is the waste basket, right? The only thing that's new in here is the the thing that you put garbage in. Okay, so that's the cubicle. Now let's get to the papers that Miss Vaughn has left. First, there's a, a list of his responsibilities. It's right on top of the stack here, and he has six duties. So let's let's go through them. One, make the company profitable and keep it profitable. Two, assist in carrying out corporate goals. Three, maintain employee discipline by reporting violators' names to their superiors. Four, help keep costs down. Five, if any problems come up, help to deal with them in accord with company policy. And six, training, production, sales, and public relations are all supervised by management personnel. So uh, this is all just as meaningless as what he got from Fields. None of this actually says anything specific. It certainly doesn't tell him what he's supposed to do while he is sitting in this cubicle. And for Lesson does the only sensible thing that you can do with this list, which is to throw it away. Yeah, it is the only sensible thing to do with a list like that. I mean, this kind of this level of abstraction when it comes to putting your hand to creating something that is supposed to... fill you on some level with a sense of meaning for your life. It's where you're spending most of your time. It's what are you going to be doing. It doesn't serve anybody. I mean, that that level of abstraction is just uncomfortable. And Wolf is doing such an excellent job of pointing out how uncomfortable it is to live in that sort of gray space, you know, both in terms of an office, but also mentally as an environment. I mean, most of what for lesson finds in the desk are items that are there solely so that the person sitting at the desk can look productive, even when they're not doing any work. There's a eraser that's been used slightly. So you're just writing things on paper and erasing them. There's a ledger with meaningless numbers in them. I mean, this is exactly how Cappy spent his time at this company when he was at his desk. And Wolf's absolutely right to say, as you are, Glenn, that the only right thing to do with any of this stuff is to just get rid of it. Let If there's a job to do, just do it. And then why have all this extra stuff that, around to help you look busy? But I want to point out here also that one of the items in the, in the brown bag lunch produces the sharp smell of apples. And this is apples fermenting or, or rotting in the desk. And again, we're given this imagery of the apples dying of the the. And I think we have to connect it to knowledge in some way. And, and Wolf seems to be saying here that certain types of knowledge are just dead or rotten in a place like this. And also discarded and forgotten, right? I mean, and, and that's you know, the for lesson part of the, of the title of, the, of this story, right? Well, now we're going to delve deeper into this company's managerial style with the, the second item in the, the stack of papers. And this is something called sample leadership problem number 105. And it's exactly that. It's a, it's a leadership scenario. So, so here's what that scenario is. And I'm, I'm just going to read this. A young woman named Enid Fenton was hired recently as clerical help. Her work has not been satisfactory, but because clerical help has been in short supply, she has not been told this. Recently, a reduction in the workload in her department made it possible to transfer three girls to another department. Miss Fenton asked for one of the transfers, and when told that they had already been assigned to others, behaved in such a manner as to suggest, though nothing was actually said, that she was considering resignation. Her work consists of key-punching, typing, and filing. At least she has some actual tasks to do. There's, there's that, at least. Uh, and then we get a list of options that the, the manager has to, to choose from about what to do next. It's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure scenario here. And, and these options, the choices that he has, include firing her, hinting that she may be laid off, uh, assigning her to help one of the older women, reassigning her to small parts assembly, uh, and asking for help from one of the other members of his leadership group, uh, among some other things. And at the bottom of this, there's a, a phone number for Eric Fairchild, whom one should call if there are any questions about the, the sample leadership problem here. And, you know, how could you not have questions about this, given that there are hardly any specifics about anything? And so for lesson calls up Fairchild on the phone and Fairchild is not much help for for lesson wants to know in what way this hypothetical secretary's work has been unsatisfactory, because that seems pertinent to deciding what to do. But Fairchild doesn't know. And even if he did, he says that he wouldn't tell for a lesson because the point of this is that all the managerial staff get this same problem. And what Forlesson wants to do then is just to write in an answer of his own. And that answer is talk to her about her work and listen to what she has to say about it. But Fairchild won't let him do that because the answers are 
scored by a, a computer, right? It's a Scantron test. So writing in answers, having a creative solution to a problem is not allowed. That is strictly forbidden here. And this leads to a conversation about what all of this is for anyway. And of course, it's utterly absurd, I think, as we're getting used to here. This is part of a leadership course that all the supervisors and managers take. And they're given a grade on a scale from 49 to 757, you know, pretty standard scale, I guess. But no one sees this except the individual who's being scored. It doesn't go up the chain of command. It's not used for anything. It's not put in your employee file for evaluations or promotion points or some, something like that. And here's what Fairchild says about this. It's, it's ridiculous. You're told your own grade in your class standing, and you're standing among everybody here who's ever taken the course. But what you do with that information is up to you. You evaluate yourself. For lesson realizes that this is pretty stupid, and so he says that he's going to leave the question blank and submit it under protest because he's not actually done the first part of the, the course yet. And so how could he possibly, you know, be graded on problem number 105? And then he hangs up on Fairchild. And there is there's still going to be some more with Fairchild, but right now it's for lessons desk that we actually need to discuss. When he hangs up on Fairchild, the, the desk begins talking to him and it, it tells him that he really needs to work harder to fit in, that he, he shouldn't be so snarky. He shouldn't have thrown away his meaningless list of responsibilities and so on. And then Fairchild calls back to ask if he's submitted his answer yet. You see, the, the deal is this. This is not actually a hypothetical question. This is really about Fairchild's own staff, and he really needs some advice about what to do. And this is how he's getting that advice is through these Scantron tests. And so he tells for lesson a little bit more about the nature of this problem. And it's a problem that, that harkens back to uh, quite a different age. Fairchild manages a staff of women secretaries, but you know, he has men who come into his office all, you know, all the time for work stuff or you know, just to hang out because as we're beginning to sense, no one actually has any real work to do around here. And these men sexually harass Fairchild's staff. Fairchild uses the phrase here, kid around with, but we can call it what it is, I think. And this particular woman doesn't always react well to it. And so it's disruptive to the social harmony of the office. And for lessons, advice is still actually the same. Talk to her, figure out what the problem is. But this does not satisfy Fairchild, who calls him crazy for suggesting that you might actually talk to your secretary about what her experience of work is. And so now Fairchild hangs up on for less and, you know, and I guess it's just because this idea of listening to a woman is just too crazy to you know bother carrying on this conversation. I'm not sure if, you know, this is because the idea of listening to a woman is crazy so much as Miss Fenton or Miss Fenton, as we see Wolf kind of playing with the names of the woman involved with this management problem here just doesn't want to take crap from any of the men in the office. And that just breaks with the status quo. She's not playing ball. She's not fitting in. Um, it makes the other woman uncomfortable. And and it's crazy here. We learned that also um, Eric Fairchild's mother is his head secretary. Or at least that's the assumption that's uncorrected that, that Emmanuel Forlesson makes. And that, Miss Fenton is filling in for her on this day, and he's maybe just trying to solve the problem that day. Like, he doesn't want to work with her. He doesn't want to tell her she's doing a bad job. She's probably not doing a bad job. She's probably just not, like, a good, quote-unquote, culture fit. And so they're trying to get rid of her, but they can't find a good reason, and it's it's a nightmare. This whole management problem really just gives me the, the heebie-jeebies. The solutions to the problems and the nature of the problem indicate a real management style that's rooted in like Soviet style oppression tactics. <laughs> it's an absolute catastrophe. The people in charge recognize that they need actual people below them to do work in order for them to look successful. But if they break the secret codes of the office culture, which are never spoken of and never to be admitted to anyone out loud, they become a problem. Those people become a problem. You know, and, and what makes them a problem? What makes a person like that a problem is that they just assert too much of their humanity instead of just completing a task and getting objectified for that. So in essence, what's happening is is that these, these, these women and perhaps the men as well are just being asked to dehumanize themselves to keep the culture going, to keep the status quo. Forlesson even has this thought earlier on where he sees Miss Fawn and he sees her become prettier in front of his eyes is, is the phrase that's used. But the consequence of that in Forlesson's mind is that 
Miss Fawn becomes a sexless mannequin. And so this whole environment is just grim and full of a sort of sexual frustration. And this sort of idea, I think, is parodied beautifully in another workplace novel called Lightning Rods by Helen DeWitt, which uh, if if you don't have a weak stomach, I recommend reading. It's another really funny but extraordinarily grim and dark workplace parody. Well, we saw this explicitly in Hour of Trust as as well, where the the only female employee, the only woman employee, is uh, sexually harassed and ends up even having sex with uh, at least two of the the male employees of of this corporation. And then the 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 celebratory work party that they're at is just explicitly staffed by women who are prostitutes. Right? That's that's how Wolf sees this this corporate culture and the the attitudes of men towards women in this environment. Yeah, it's got to be a terrible workplace for anybody who has that sort of ethical knowledge and wants to apply ethical knowledge and and, and social norms to work, but is being confronted with the fact if they do, they're not going to fit in either. That, that, That type of knowledge is just not welcome in the workplace, even though everybody knows better. I also want to point out on a different note that Wolf is doing something here with the number sevens with the scoring of the test. And um, we're going to see numerology probably come into play in this story in a way that we'll bring up in our discussion. Yeah, right. That that 49, that's the baseline score is seven times seven, which you know is all over the, the, the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew Bible. And I'm looking forward to cracking into the, the numerology of this, but also the the naming conventions, right, where letters in Hebrew also can be assigned these numerical values, and we might suss out some meaning from that as well. That'll be fun to play around with in the discussion. For now, it is time to go meet someone a little higher up the the corporate hierarchy. I'm excited about this. Mr. Freeling is Fields' boss, and he'd like to chat with Forlesson a little bit. Freeling has a, a genuine office with real windows, though all these windows do is overlook the highway. And he has been all landscape pictures on his wall, just like Fields does, but his desk is much larger and it's got glass over it. And, and underneath that glass, he has photographs of sailboats and sailors. And where Fields spoke entirely in sports metaphors, Freeling speaks entirely in nautical metaphors. He says things like stand watch, safe harbor, and fixing leaks. And this meeting is really just so Freeling can see how Forlesson is liking his new job and for lesson then uses the opportunity here to ask someone higher up what that job actually is, right? He still does not know what he is supposed to be doing. And Freeling says that answering that question just isn't that simple. If he was labor, of course, he could just tell him to go make a certain part. But that's not what management does. And now we, we get here another speech that I just, I just want to read. This is great. If I knew what you ought to be doing, I'd hire a clerk to do it. You're where you are because we feel, rightly or wrongly, that you can find your own work, recognize it when you see it, and do it, or get somebody else to. Just make damn sure you don't step on anybody's toes while you're doing it, and don't make more trouble than you fix. Don't rock the boat. And keep your hand off the tiller. Look at it this way. Your job is fixing leaks. Only the sailor who spent most of his life down there in the hold with oakum and fast patch has the experience necessary to recognize the landmarks and weather signs. But don't you patch a leak somebody else is already patching, or has been told to patch, or is getting ready to patch. Understand? Don't come running to me with complaints, and don't let me get any complaints about you. So, again, no real job, no real work. And on his way out, Forlesson asks Miss Fawn where he can find out what company policy is. And she says, it's in the air. You breathe it in. And when he suggests that, you know, it might be helpful to have it written down somewhere, she adds, you've been here long enough to know better than that. You're no kid anymore. Oh, man, I just think there's something terribly wrong with this company. And we also get at this point that like for lesson has been at this job longer than he's realized. There's a lot of strange things going on with time and and for lessons encounter with these people is just a, a night. It's nightmarish. There are a few things I want to address, though. This bit about policy being in the air. It's what you breathe in. It's a reference to how companies can use something like company culture to enforce norms and practices that they're just not comfortable writing down. And the whole management questionnaire is an example of this. It's it's a it's a sort of subversive way to enforce norms about communication and etiquette and ethics without 
ever having to write down that this is what this is the way we want you to interact with people. It's kind of that learned behavior from uh, management from the top down that people pick up and then adapt in order to seem as if they're in that sort of upper echelon. And if some companies were to write down some of the ways that they expect their employees to act, that's just based on what's in the air, it would be horrifying to read about. And and that is something that I think Wolf is really putting out here as well. And I think this is really evident in, in Freeling's language that is also ripe with rife with empty signifiers. Freeling speaks entirely in boating metaphors, but he has no practical applications for them. And he's just reinforcing the point that managers don't do anything. And all of our language is just a screen to hide the fact that we're not really supposed to be doing any of the work. This phrase that he says, if I knew what you were meant to be doing, I'd hire a clerk to do it, is terrible. I mean, we're faced with this idea that People intuitively know that human ingenuity and creativity are important, but once a job can be reduced to tasks, you don't need the aspects of the person anymore. And, and management then becomes a class of people who ought to be recognized for their ability to lead or be creative or motivate others. But once they are doing something that can be put into a checklist, a checklist that checklist can be done by anybody and you don't need the manager anymore. So the goal of being a manager is actually to just remain in this nebulous space of work that can't be reduced to tasks because if it can be reduced to tasks, you don't have value anymore and you could get a demotion. You're you well, if that's all it is, then we can just get hired two people for cheaper than what we're paying you to cover these tasks and it's a nightmare and it's and I'm left with this kind of gross sense that that these people have this attitude, this management class in this story has this attitude that real work and real labor is for like a lower class of people entirely. And and at this point, the story just really is gross um, with all the implications of work culture and management culture and what work is actually for. Right. The, the idea here, what is being told in this moment is go find something to do look really busy, don't let me ever hear anything about you, and don't really let anyone know what it is that you're doing or pretending to do, because if people can actually label what it is that you do, then you're not actually adding any value. That you, it, What you bring to the company needs to be a mysterious thing that only you can bring, otherwise you're actually dispensable, and, and that's not what the point of this is. But it's all just smoke and mirrors. Nobody is doing anything here except having meetings with other people about nothing, right? And this is, I mean, we have been in this exact workplace, and I think probably most of us have. Okay, so up to this point, this has seemed like absolutely the worst first day on a job that is imaginable, and I think I would have quit already by this point, but we actually haven't even gotten to the worst of it yet. Uh, but now we get to go to the long-anticipated creativity group meeting, on his way, Forlesson runs into Fields, who is also going to attend this meeting. And, and as they, they walk through the, the drilling room, they see a young man burn his hand on his industrial drill. This is going to be the only real sense of labor that we actually get in this story. And burning his hand, right? This is a, a serious injury to a guy who is doing some kind of actual work. But all Fields says is, that's a good operator. He pushes everything right along. You know what I mean? So... It seems like Fields doesn't even know what that guy does either, right? Management doesn't know what labor does, but they also don't know what management does. So really, what are any of these people for? He just watched a guy get hurt and doesn't even recognize that the guy actually got hurt. So when they get to the creativity group, which is convening in a hallway outside the drilling room, the guy in charge of it is setting up a projector. It's, it's pretty old school now, but I think we've all seen this kind of thing before, even if it's just you know in a movie you've watched. So he's setting up a projector so that they can show the training film called Creativity Means Jobs. The agenda for this meeting is to, to watch this film, do a freeform critique of the film, and then have an open discussion on creativity in problem study. And this phrase, creativity and problem study, bothers one of the attendees, and, and this prompts a, a jargon-filled conversation about a bunch of nothing. Uh, to this guy, the, this, this phrase implies that creativity is automatically going to point you towards some solution you didn't see before, but he feels that anyone who believes that doesn't know what he's talking about. 
And another man who's here explains that why they're working on creativity is because creativity in the way of problem study is going to point the way to new ways of seeing your problem. And the first man continues to object because these new ways won't necessarily be successful. The other man agrees if what is meant by successful is permitting you to make a non-trivial elaboration of the problem definition. And this just inane jargon goes on for a little longer, but I think we all get the picture, right? No one is talking about anything real or anything specific here. It's just people saying buzzwords to each other and just filling up space and taking up time. And speaking of time, now it is time for for Lesson's joke about the lump of clay to come back. And this this is a brilliant bit of wolfishness here. Fields intervenes in this conversation, and let's just read what he says. You know, Ned told me one time when he was talking to somebody about what we do at these meetings. This fellow said he thought we'd just each take a lump of clay or something and, you know, start trying to make some kind of shape. I think we can all learn something from that. What we can learn is most people, when we talk about our creativity group, are are thinking the same way this guy was. And that's why, when we talk about it, we got to make certain points. Like, for one thing, creativity isn't ever what you do alone, right? It's your creative group that gets things done. Synergy and teamwork. And second, creativity isn't about making new things, like some statue or something nobody wants. What creativity is about is solving company problems. All of this is just utter banality, of course, but Fields is not done. He has an actual concrete example of what he's talking about. He's not going to ever finish his point if if he was ever actually going to have one. I'm skeptical. But the few things he says next are probably important for the, the world building and for our discussion. So what he tells us is that this company was founded by a man named Adam Bean. And when Adam Bean died, Mr. Dudley took over and had to decide if they should go on making the same stuff they did under Bean or if they should make something different. And then Fields at this point just devolves into trying to talk about how a football team is the most creative thing there is before he's finally interrupted, maybe mercifully interrupted by Miss Fawn. And the the deal is that, that Fields is wanted on the telephone for something urgent, so he'll have to actually miss the creativity group meeting. After all, I mean, this whole thing is just a, a setup. Uh, there is no phone call, and this was just arranged by Fields so that his subordinates, right, these guys at this meeting will think that he's important and, and they'll be impressed by him. And Forlesson realizes this, but he also realizes that everyone else realizes this too. But nonetheless, even though they realize this is all a sham, they actually are still impressed because Fields was able to convince his boss's secretary to help him with his scheme. And and that takes some kind of, you know, skill set or some kind of courage or something in the, you know, environment of this this corporate culture here. Okay, so we're just about done with this scene, and, and, and then we'll do just one more before we close out this episode. We're nearing, nearing the end here. So they, they finally start the film Creativity Means Jobs, and it is a scene in a schoolroom, but the sound isn't working, so they have no idea what's actually going on. And it turns out that what this is is actors dramatizing a real meeting at a prestigious private school, and it was a meeting that they were having about promoting creativity in the educational system. So... In a nutshell, what they're doing is that they're, they're watching a dramatic reenactment of a discussion about another industry without the sound. Yeah, this is a real Ion's chain sort of problem in my reading. And Ion is a platonic or pseudo-platonic dialogue that attacks certain ideas about the value of representation in art in particular, but just in general. Pretty much the idea is that the further you get away from imitating the ideal the worse that thing is for the world. Uh, It's an interesting idea. You have to believe in platonic ideals to really buy into the logic of the argument. But I think it's a helpful sort of category for the way that we'll frame some things that happen later on, especially with the uh, bet your life game that we'll see in in the next section. But in this case, you know, we have a creativity group that doesn't believe in creativity. Watching a film where actors reenact a conversation had by teachers about creatively approaching problems in an entirely unrelated field without sound. So it's a group of businessmen watching a film of charades, but nobody even can guess at what is being done here. And and this is pretty much the basement of the chain of representation. And it's absolutely useless and might actually be harmful for everybody, uh, for everyone's soul in attendance. It's that bad. And you know, also along those lines, you have the manager of managers who, by all accounts, ought to be leading by example for thinking about leadership in any meaningful sense, pretty much showing up to the meeting, showing up to the meeting, signing the attendance sheet, and then leaving. 
And the f- the fact that he's able to do this leads other members of the meeting to have sensations of awe and, and hope that they can someday get to the point in their careers where, where they can be clever enough to find a way out of these sorts of things. So it's just a total recognition that this is all a, a sham. Everyone is just going through the emotions, and it's a real kind of nightmare. And, and what's worse is that we see that the work that these managers do doesn't have any impact on making the workplace safer for the people actually performing the labor. Someone getting injured in, in front of a manager in with workplace machinery doesn't constitute a problem worth solving because it's not really clear how that is immediately connected to efficiency or productivity or profit because this guy is willing to work with a burned hand. It's awful. And we can contrast that scene, this image of this worker injuring himself, performing actual labor at this job with Fields' statement that creativity isn't about making stuff, right? It's not, that creativity is not actually about creating anything. Fields and, and all these other guys just have no idea what it would actually be to affect anything around them in any meaningful way or any tangible way. And the, the, they, and, and, and it's so bad that they can't even recognize when someone has, who is doing that, who's in the process of doing that has done it poorly or injured himself while doing it. Cause they just, they can't even recognize what it should look like. Right. And that's because making stuff can be reduced to a series of tasks that anybody can perform given enough training. So the issue can always be placed upon the person who performed the tasks wrong, not the machines who are allowing labor to even take place in the first place. And this is all caught up in the in in in, in Jacquelul's conception of technique subsuming everything that it comes into contact with to the point where people are just serving technique and the person disappears. And we see that here in this scene as well with the, the business with the projector, right? There's this guy whose whole job is just to set up this projector, and he doesn't even do that right. But it turns out not to, to matter. They just they just don't solve this problem of there not being any sound, right? Though I think you know someone with some actual creativity might be able to figure out how this machine works and fix the problem. And of course, right, we've seen for less and be told that his job is to fix problems, or fix leaks. Uh, but there's no incentive for actually doing that here because everyone is just perfectly content to sit here and watch this silent movie that has just no meaning or significance to them because they've already done all of their jargon-filled bickering in front of their manager who's now left. And so it's just, they're just waiting now, right? And this is where I think that that use in the, the very beginning of the story of W-A-I-T instead of you know, something having weight, having mass is a really important part of the, the theme here. Well, all right. So all of that was for Lesson's morning, his first morning at work, the first half of his first day on this new job. And now it is time for lunch. And and this is where we're going to finish up for this episode. So they get a full hour for lunch. So for Lesson decides to, to go home to eat. And this might actually be the most antiquated concept in this story. I don't know a single person who's ever done this in real life. When he gets home, his wife doesn't recognize him, and she thinks that he's a salesman. She says that he looks different than he did this morning, and he looks tired. The kids, it it turns out, they don't actually come home for for lunch from school, so it's just the two of them. And Edna didn't know that she was supposed to expect him. I guess this wasn't in the manual. So all that she does here is brew some coffee and make him a sandwich, and just like breakfast, none of it tastes very good or, or really tastes like much of anything at all. But that's fine, because what Furlesson really wants is to have sex. He doesn't want lunch. He wants to have sex with his wife. But his wife's not in the mood, and she says that they'll have time for that later tonight. They won't, of course. Uh, and now they, they talk about their days. And Furlesson says that he has plenty to do, though he doesn't think there's any actual purpose in any of it. But Edna says that she finds that she has nothing to do here in the home. She, she made the beds, and she did some cleaning, but that only took a few hours. And Furlesson suggests then that you know, she has spare time during the day that she could read, but she says that she's too nervous to do that. And then when he suggests that, well, you know, you could have maybe prepared a better lunch for me. She says, that's nothing, just nothing. And she really emphasizes the word nothing here. And and clearly each of them is struggling to find meaning in how they are spending their time uh, in, in forms that they were 
told. These were orders they received, you know, when they when they woke up here this morning. And for Lesson at this point, he muses that he doesn't really know Edna very well, that he's actually now spent more time with Fields and, and Miss Fawn and even with Freeling, and he actually knows them better. And now his hour for lunch is up. It's it's, it's time to go back to work. And so we will stop here. And uh, next time we'll pick up with For Lessons Afternoon at Work. The thing that really breaks my heart about this section is, is For Lessons thought that his wife only savors his company when she knows she'll be deprived of it. And that him being home makes her nervous. She's nervous around him. And I think that Wolf is sort of examining this notion of love that is that is rooted in anticipation and maintaining the fantasy of the other person and what they can do for you rather than getting to know them more deeply by being around them and acting with kindness towards them and generosity and, well, what we call love. But I mean, <laughs> love's got a lot of different sorts of angles to it, I guess. But but both of the partners in this marriage act in this way where they, they'd rather think about their partner than really be with them. And they both recognize that the things they do to keep the home and family together in some nominal sense aren't valuable to anybody at all. And, and, and they, they, it even takes away from their own sense of meaning in life. But it, it does keep them apart and it makes them strangers over time, which they're complacent about. And part of that is because they're just caught up in maintaining the social order with their marriage, which is, as we've mentioned before, full of implicit threats to their well-being if they step out of line. They can't even address their fully human needs and wants to, say, have sex with each other. And we're also reminded at this point that for Lesson still has never seen his children. It's just so sad. Yeah, this is really a, a heartbreaking scene. They they both recognize that something is just wrong with this whole system, this whole setup, but they don't really know how to talk about that, right? There are no actual options other than to do what is in the the manual, right? This is a this is actually a moment where uh, creative thinking would be really helpful, but in fact, all of that has been expressly for, forbidden and we have seen it be expressly forbidden in in the various you know components of the instructions that for lesson was given and so they both just have to sit here and and not really even talk to each other in particularly meaningful ways uh, one more thing in this scene that I do want to emphasize is the the lack of reading this is actually going to be something that comes back in the 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 next episode the next scene and for lessons afternoon that she's too nervous to read that there's something about the anxiety the the stress that she feels the worry that she feels that she can't even read a book right so there's no no joy of any kind of art or creativity in this world even though she actually has some free time right and there's no community of other women who are home either to do anything with she doesn't have the benefit of social engagement the way that for lesson does when he goes to work so her being at home only allows her the opportunity to worry about her children, worry about her husband, and think about what they're like when she's not with them, but doesn't want to get to know them when they're there. And it's just a really, really tragic picture. But don't worry, there's more tragedy to come in the next episode. That's going to do it for this one. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Some of them actually do involve making things with clay. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of section of this section we covered today uh, for a lesson. A lot of material there. So we'd love to, to dig into it more with you. So next time, we're going to be covering the conclusion of this story. And then after that, we'll have a fourth episode that's going to be devoted to a discussion of the whole thing. And there is going to be a lot to discuss. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>